you know, you think like a herd of muskox. When they believe they're being threatened by wolves, they cluster themselves together in a very tight way. And, you know, threat does that to really any social species. You cluster together with those who are like you in an, effect, in an attempt to ward off the threat. You're listening to The Purple Principle and our featured guest today, Dr. Abigail Marsh of Georgetown University. And so when communities believe they're being threatened by others who are, um, they perceive um, a threat to their values or to their livelihood or to their welfare, um, you tend to get more sort of black and white thinking, which is another strong promoter of ideology, uh, a lack of trust, you know, a tendency to be mistrustful and hostile and um, prone to conspiratorial thinking, which are all sort of bound up together. Dr. Marsh is not a certified muskoxologist. She is, however, a highly respected professor of psychology and neuroscience at Georgetown University and the author of The Fear Factor, How One Emotion Connects Altruists, Psychopaths, and Everyone in Between. This is Robert Pease, host of The Purple Principle, here today with staff reporter Emily Crisetti, who interviewed Dr. Marsh on the psychology of partisanship. Welcome, Emily. Good to be here, even if remotely. Yes, that's what we mean by here these days, just technically here. So let's get into the interview. Can Dr. Marsh help us out? Yes, I think so. Um, Her neuro and psych angle definitely make for a really interesting take um, viewing partisanship through that lens. Plus, she lives in D.C., so like it or not, she's informed on politics as well. And she's around a lot of college students. Yes, she is. And that definitely helps her see firsthand how social media can divide us. Great. And the interview is in three parts? Exactly. Uh, Based on our three questions, how did we get so partisan? Or so muskox. How do we get less partisan? Endangered bipartisan muskox? (laughs) And... Can independence help in the process? I don't know how to musk ox that, so let's get into the interview with Dr. Abigail Marsh, Georgetown professor and author of The Fear Factor. So, Dr. Marsh, welcome. So we've been looking at data that shows increased polarization since the 1980s between political parties, but... Obviously, our brain structure has not changed since then. So what do you think is going on here? Anybody trained in social psychology, as I have, knows how powerful situations are in determining how we treat one another. The entire field of social psychology uh, started in part um, based on questions uh, like how did the, you know, travesties of Nazi Germany happen, right? Or is it Germans are just evil people? And obviously the answer is no. But uh, certain kinds of situations can predispose people who are fundamentally normal and good to do terrible things, um, including sometimes um, think very poorly of and mistrust people who think differently than themselves. And so what kinds of situations have made Americans more polarized in the last 40 years? Americans actually... um, have fairly moderate opinions, especially if you can ask them outside of the context of a um, survey that that sparks their um, ideological identity. That said, um, we certainly hear a lot more from the people on the extremes um, for a variety of reasons. And what's interesting is you see a lot more um, 
melding of groups as a function of things like race and religion than you did 50 years ago. But we've sorted a lot more along political lines. It used to be the case that you know people would be less uh, comfortable having dinner with people of other races. And now people say they're less comfortable having dinner with people from different political backgrounds. Okay, yeah, that is sad, but definitely true. Um, but now let's turn to the main theme of your well-received book, The Fear Factor. Could you tell us how fear could potentially relate to partisanship and perhaps why some people are more susceptible to partisanship than others? You will be shocked to learn that as a person who is a professor living in Washington, D.C., I know many, many people who are politically liberal. Um, although I should emphasize my husband is a veteran and I come from a part of the country that was had a heavy um, sort of military presence. And so I also know plenty of people who are politically conservative. It is very common for politically progressive people I know to just assume that people who are Trump supporters, for example, are psychopaths. Like I hear that comment. And I know that people on the other side believe the same thing. What people I think often fail to appreciate is that, you know, people who are good people um, can often fail to experience empathy and compassion for others, not because of a fundamental inability to experience empathy and compassion, but because nobody experiences compassion for people who they view as a threat to themselves or to other people that they love. So that was Abigail Marsh on our first question, how did we get so partisan? And as her book suggests, fear is a huge factor. Which must be why partisan media is so fear-based. And unfortunately, so effective. Uh, But also, she stressed true social interaction and the dangerous lack of it in Congress. And that reminds us of what Charles Whelan said in our second episode. About senators not knowing each other's dogs. Exactly. Can't have civil society without tail wagging. Why don't we play that Whelan clip again for those who've not heard it? Dr. Charles Whelan, founder of Unite America. One thing we haven't talked about is the climate in Washington is different. There is not the spirit of camaraderie. And it's amazing how these things are connected. So what I've been told is that before you had to raise as much money as you do now, campaigns are so much more expensive, members of Congress typically lived in DC, which meant that their family socialized. They had a personal relationship which meant that they could argue by day, but they just couldn't be as mean to each other. Their spouses knew each other. They knew their dogs. If only Congress legislated pet sharing across the aisle. That has potential. But Dr. Marsh had some other ideas around our second question, how to get less partisan or less muskox. And are there any grounds for hope? I think so. I mean, we all have the same emotions, and they can divide us for sure, but they also allow us to empathize and cooperate, even at 30,000 feet in the air. Okay, so let's hear from Dr. Marsh at high altitude. We're a tremendously social and pro-social species. Uh, It's easy to forget that, but um, my favorite example is um, air travel. You know, if you tried to take 400 strangers of any other species on earth, basically, and stick them in a little uncomfortable metal tube and rattle them around in the sky for six hours, it would be bloodshed by, you know, 20 minutes in. Even, you know, domestic dogs would probably be at each other's throats. And the fact that, you you know, you can usually assume 
with perfect certainty that on an average flight, all of these strangers will behave very civilly towards one another um, is a nice reminder of just how willing to get along our species is under the right circumstances. So then is that just empathy? The ability to recognize that those around you are stuck in the same metal tube? Um, yes. Uh, there's some debate on exactly what empathizing means uh, among scholars, but the basic idea is that you're able to model uh, phenomena in the minds of others. So if somebody is in pain, you understand uh, what that feels like. So it seems like people have no problem empathizing within their own parties, but empathizing with the other side seems to be what's missing. Yeah, you're, um, there's an interesting phenomenon known as the outgroup homogeneity phenomenon by which we tend to view members of outgroups as kind of abstractions. This is a topic I bring up in my classes sometimes. Um, the fundamental tension between diversity and empathy, and I mean any kind of diversity. And I think that's what happens across the ideological divide. You know, for somebody who hates Donald Trump, it is impossible for them to imagine the mind that would lead to loving Donald Trump. And so when that happens, you sort of give up on coming up with an empathic portrait of the inner life of this other person, and you just resort to stereotypes. So then if this plane is a metaphor for, say, our democracy, how do you get that going in your classroom um, between your students, that level of cooperation? I am teaching an undergraduate seminar now uh, called Empathy and Communication. And one of the things I do is have them come up with controversial topics here on campus. And then I ask them to sit down and have a conversation with another classmate who disagrees with their view on that. Actually, this came up in a class the other day. A student was talking about, you know, feeling like there was the, the two choices in this situation that caused a disagreement were to either just avoid talking about it directly or to have a confrontation. And I'm like, whoa, there's a whole option that ha- that is neither avoiding, it's it's neither fight or flight. It's assume it's, you know, trusting that this person is a reasonable person. And maybe you can you can reach some sort of an agreement if you just talk to them. Do you find it difficult working with them on conversations like that, where they're they're trying, but maybe failing to reach some kind of compromise? Cynically, I think it's probably the case that there are large institutions that their interest is in ginning up people's resentment toward one another. And so unfortunately, the way that we get information in the world right now makes it very susceptible to messaging from big organizations that don't care at all how well people get along. All they care about is their own interest. It definitely seems like that, uh, at least in my generation, the sentiment is that if you have a friend that disagrees with you politically, you either have to end the friendship or literally stop talking politics at all costs. At the root of the belief that when there's a disagreement, the two choices are avoid talking about it or have a confrontation is mistrust, right? Because if the confrontation is, well, we have to have a fight about this where there's a winner and avoidance is like, oh my God, like if if I were to bring this topic up, that this person would attack me. They both reveal a lack of trust and the possibility that the other person has a reasonable, you know, thinks that they're making the right choice. You know, being attacked by somebody who disagrees with you has never changed anybody's mind in the history of the world. I'm fairly sure of it. 
I totally agree. Uh, I don't think we even need to fact check that statement. But it, it seems like this kind of communication could really benefit students, especially. Uh, do you know of any other programs out there that are really working to promote effective communication? I know there's a whole industry of educational consultants out there who are um, willing to sell programs that don't always work that well. But I, I mean, I, these principles work and we know they work. Uh, they're based on, you know, some of the most rock solid psychology there is. Actually, one of my questions for you is when, what was the age at which you first spent time with friends alone? like outside or in somewhere public, like a mall with no, you know, grownups you knew anywhere nearby? Um, I would say probably like 10 or 11. And that's really historically strange. Um, so my, certainly my mom's generation, uh, kids, when she was growing up, would walk to school alone when they were six miles sometimes. Um, and there's been a real change in the age at which adolescents reach milestones related to independence. And it's interesting to consider whether this means that adolescents are spending less time having unmediated disagreements with peers. No adult is there to referee, you know, like you, if you have a disagreement, it's just you and your friends off playing in the woods. And I know you mentioned before about how seeing others as an abstraction is when you can't empathize with them. Uh, and it seems like that is going on in this case with having no referee, in addition to all the kids just being on their iPads all the time, <laughs> uh, instead of being outside, actually like interacting. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting seeing the disagreements among psychologists about how disruptive this switch to heavily technologically mediated communication is going to be. Um, then, you know, we're animals. Like we really, the way that, you know, the people around us smell and sound and feel, I mean, those are all things that moderate our brain activity at a really primitive level um, that we are only beginning to understand. There's cool research by Robin Dunbar um, in uh, England shows that if you get people physically together in a group and have them all watch a, a very emotional movie or all sing together, it has an effect on their experience of pain, like their, their pain tolerance goes up. It's amazing stuff. And so the physical presence of other people, a touch of other people, it's so important. And I do think we're losing that. And it kind of bums me out. So trust and empathy could bridge the political divide. Uh, but is the problem that we just don't know how to overcome our initial fear? You know, the, I really think that contact hypothesis is really all what it comes down to. And it's one of the oldest theories in psychology, which is that just contact with people who are different from yourself, especially in a non-antagonistic setting, is a great way to heal these divides. And one of the reasons that for the current political divide relates to changes that Newt Gingrich made to the way Congress works decades ago, where um, you know he changed the length of the congressional work week so that he made it much shorter so that Congress people could go back to their home districts over the weekends. And then it turned out their families didn't move to DC. They didn't hang out socially together in DC anymore. And so people that used to have these friendships across different political differences stopped having those friendships. So then do you know of any studies or evidence that shows that when you put people who are initially divided in contact with each other, they get along more over time? Well, 
classic like canonical psychology study is the robber's cave study that was done by uh, Sharif back in the sixties. Uh, and <laughs> you could never do the study today, but he got this, this uh, camp uh, full of boys um, to sort of do this experiment for him. And he divided the boys into two groups called the Eagles and the Rattlers and did all sorts of things to get them to view the other team as the opposition. And then he engineered it one day so that the bus that was taking the Eagles and the Rattlers to wherever they were going broke down in the mud and they had to work together to get it out. And it turned out that that solved all of their, you know, basically healed these uh, divisions. So how could we apply that to partisanship in the U.S.? Um, Like, is there a way to do this proactively so that it doesn't take some terrible, terrible thing that finally causes Americans to come together? I don't think what I'm saying is particularly novel, but the I don't think it's an accident that we had in the same states where it turned out the most recent presidential election hinged, that it turned out there was this unbelievable amount of suffering going on beneath the surface due to the opioid crisis and then due to some of the other factors that precipitated it. And people who are happy are, and feel like they're flourishing and their lives are going well are not generally hateful. But I think the, the gross income inequality and wealth inequality that we see across communities is a huge part of the problem. Like it creates, it creates worse outcomes for everybody. So that was Dr. Abigail Marsh on how we might get less partisan. And such an important connection between economic suffering and partisanship. Which could really be an entire episode. But what about our third and final question, Emily? Can independent-minded Americans find common purple ground? Was Dr. Marsh willing to take that one on? Yes, she did offer some insights, definitely. Um, But first, to the independents out there, a renowned psychologist thinks that you probably have higher cognitive ability. Well, we knew that, but always good to hear it again. This time from Dr. Abigail Marsh. Uh, Well, I should emphasize I'm not a political scientist. That said, yes, absolutely. Somebody who doesn't strongly identify with one political party or the other to a degree that they sort of view political life as this black or white thing. um, Yes, they should have a very different way of thinking about um, people on either side of the political gap, although they might also have trouble empathizing with people who have very extreme political views. For them, that might be very hard to imagine. Okay, so then what about people who are political independents? Are they somehow more or less equipped to empathize in this tough political climate? You know, I haven't seen anything along those lines uh, myself. Um I do know that, again, the sort of person who's less likely to gravitate toward the extreme um, of either end of the political spectrum is more likely to sort of be comfortable and able to grasp uh, cognitive complexity. So people who are ideological extremists tend to have a little more simplified views of others and of the world in general, um, partly due to lower cognitive ability. Um, you would expect the people who are more in the middle of the political spectrum to be able to um, view the world as more complex and so not automatically assume that people whose views are different from them are a threat. They'd be able to consider the possibility that there are people who think differently from themselves but who might have reasons to think the way they do other than just being fundamentally bad people. Um, and if you can just start with that, 
right? Things are complicated. You don't always understand other people's interior lives that well. Someone might believe something totally different from me, but they might have a reason that even if I don't agree with it, I would at least understand how they got there if I had a conversation with them. At least have a conversation. In today's polarized society, that's great advice from our featured guest, Dr. Abigail Marsh, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Georgetown University and author of The Fear Factor. She was interviewed by staff reporter Emily Crisetti. In this episode, you heard Dr. Marsh stress the importance of seeing complexity in people, such as the Twitter troll who suffers back pain or economic stress. We have two upcoming guests who have more to say about one of the great ironies of our time. Social media often makes human communication much more difficult. First, Dr. Robert Elliott Smith, author of Rage Inside the Machine, will highlight the dangers of polarizing algorithms. The further you get from face-to-face communication with another person, the more dangerous the communication becomes. And we all know this. And the reason is, is because there's a lot more to communication simply than symbolic communication through the written word or through the abbreviated written word in Twitter. And that's because human communication is extremely complex, as is all human interaction. Also coming soon, comedian and podcaster Mike Kaplan will push back in interesting ways against our hypothesis of growing partisanship. I guess it's hard to say. Definitely, if it is more polarized, it might, perhaps part of it is that we know, we have so much, we have more data. We have more, more people are talking. Like it might've been a lot of people, you know, 50 years ago before Twitter, like had all these thoughts and would have been like, think tweeting in their own head. There's just more chatter. There's more talking. There's more people expressing views across the spectrum. Please join us for these and other episodes as we explore these questions. How did we get so partisan? How could we get less partisan? And can independent-minded Americans help bridge the partisan divide? This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team. Sarah Holtz, associate producer, Janice Murphy, senior editor, Emily Crisetti, staff reporter, Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer, Emily Holloway, research and fact-checking. Our original music, playing us out right now, is by Ryan Adair Rooney. No muskox or congressional pets were harmed in this production. Last but not least, please have a conversation with us. We'd love to hear your purple tale or comment or suggestion on social media or through our website at purpleprinciple.com.